It's 1900 in Canberra, 11 a.m. here in Milan, 10 a.m. in London and 5 a.m. in New York. You're listening to Monocle 24. And now, it's time for brunch. Good morning, it's Sunday the 13th of April 2019 and today on Sunday Brunch we're bringing you a very special edition broadcasting from our pop-up radio studio here in Milan from this city's fabulous Salona de Mobile. Join us over the next hour as we celebrate a week of clever thinking, innovative ideas and handsome architecture. Plus, speaking of handsome, Monocle's Ben Rylan will join us for a look at some of the weekend news stories that have really got the world talking. So pour yourself a coffee. It's time for Sunday brunch. A very warm welcome to a rather chilly Milan. This is a special edition of Sunday brunch live from the Salona de Mobile. First today, a look at what's making news. The Venezuelan president has ordered that the country's civilian militia be expanded by almost a million members. The call from President Nicolas Maduro comes as opposition leader Juan Guaido tours to the western Zulia state, which has been besieged by electrical blackouts. Four countries from the European Union have agreed to take 64 migrants who were rescued after being stranded in the Mediterranean for almost two weeks. Italy and Malta refused to allow the Alan Kurdi ship to dock. Both countries said the ship, which is operated by a German humanitarian group, was the responsibility of Libya. A plane with the largest wingspan in the world has taken flight for the first time. Strato Launch, the company behind the new aircraft, aims to use it to launch satellites into orbit. And the man responsible for igniting one of the world's greatest LGBT political movements has died at the age of 90. Ron Austin was one of many young gay Australians who were struggling against unjust treatment in the 1960s and 70s. At a time when homosexuality was still a crime, Austin asked, why don't we have a street party? The Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras is today one of the world's largest celebrations and a major tourism drawcard. Our flat whites have just arrived, courtesy of the Monocle Café, which we've brought along with us for our special series of broadcasts from the Salona de Mobile here in Milan. In a moment, we'll have a look at some of the stories that have been dominating the weekend papers around the world. But first, earlier this week, Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé, spoke to Paolo Verri. He's the director of the Matera Basilicata 2019 Foundation. Matera is 2019's European capital of culture, as he told Tyler. Uh, Matera is becoming the capital of co-creation, so mostly we work with citizens. Citizens are really our, our strongest part, so we work with them also for the opening ceremony. 6,000 people make it possible to have a new light for the opening ceremony. Uh, 800 will uh, put Dante on the top with a theatre event that will take place in May. And uh, 1,000 people will apply to work with us with Giorgio Barberio Cossetti for Cavalleria Rusticana that will be a lyrical opera that will take place in, in August and so on. So people are making culture. Actually, dialogue is our, our key point and open future is our claim. It's often very hard, whether it's an Olympics, whether it's a capital of culture moment, to engage local citizens. We see this time and again, particularly in the run-up to probably a lot of Olympic events, how do you get people involved? So great to say co-creation, but what have you done in Matera that is allowed to bring in people and to, and to actually engage? You know, for Matera people, it's a very important moment because they used to be in the first part of the last century, the poorest city in Europe. So it's a sort of ransom for them. And it's a very big uh, deal also to manage with young people. A lot of young people move from the south part of Italy, not only to the north part, but also on the north part of, of Europe, on the world. So our duty is to let them remain. So what we plan is really to work with a lot of technology and to make mixed technology with tradition. We have a very interesting place that is the, the Geodesy Center, that a place where every day, one of the fifth place in the world, for every day a ray moves from the Earth to the Moon. That is the symbol of our work, that the people can do everything. So we involve from the school till the other people to work with us every day. They make possible, to, for example, to have 9,000 flags of European Union on the, on the, on the top of their, of their houses. They are very proud 
proud to be European. Tell me, when you look at the scale and the ambition of something like Matera, a lot is put in over that one-year period, but of course, you know, as much as we talk about public engagement, there's always a legacy issue. And it almost seems that there's never a middle ground. Places succeed with legacy or they wholly fail. It seems like there's nothing that's sort of mezzo-mezzo. What is the plan and, and what are you sort of laying in terms of groundwork to make sure that people are talking about Matera, not just at the back end of, of 2020, but of course for decades to come? You know, I, that's something that I call normally urban paradox. So if you open the water, you cannot stop them. And what happened is that before these events, Matera was one of the thousand waterfall places in the, the south part of Italy. Now uh, Matera is one of the top 10 in Italy. So everybody is divided into two parts, the people that actually came of the people that want to come. So for the, ne for the next 10 years, you have to know that Matera is the only city in the southern part of Italy that uh, raised up with 1.6% of, uh, of economy growth in the last year. So it's, it's impressive. We have an economy base of, uh, on leisure by the 33% and a lot of investment also for investment. So we have uh, the opportunity to last almost 10 years. What is really important is not quantity actually is quality i must say that uh, the people that they use very well uh, the old district of the sofa that was the, the former district in basilicata actually they work with a beautiful style for interior design all the people that come in matera they are delighted by a restaurant and uh, an hotel because the quality is really really high okay before we go three reasons if you're still listening to this you're planning your spring break, your summer break, your early autumn, three reasons why you need to go to Matera. First of all, because you see what is the quarry renewal. And we will have uh, uh, on 18, 19, 20 of July, all the events for the first man of the moon with Brianino, top score in music. First in Matera, then in London. That it means uh, the quality will succeed. Second, you, are, you will have uh, a beautiful southern events also with Notte della Taranta in September. So we link the macro region, starting from Calitri with Vinicio Capossela and reaching Salento, passing through Basilicata. And the third one, by the end, you have to come also because of the food. You cannot imagine. Food is, is wonderful everywhere in Italy, but in Matera is special. That was Monocle's editor-in-chief Tyler Brulé at Salona de Mobile in Milan. He was speaking to Paolo Veri, director of the Matera Basilicata 2019 Foundation. Matera is 2019's European capital of culture. Live here on Monocle 24 with a special edition of Sunday Brunch, broadcasting from the Salona de Mobile in Milan. Let's take a look at some of the stories in the weekend papers now. I'm joined by Monocle's Ben Ryland. Uh, ben, it's pretty chilly here, I have to say. I think you're holding up remarkably well. Yeah, I've got to say, this is not how I was led to believe that uh, Italy would be for the Salone del Mobile. Though I have to say, the people of Milan are really taking it in their stride. The festival atmosphere is still very much in the air here at the Salone. Uh, even if the skies are a little bit grey, uh, as the old adage goes, they are going to clear up, Georgina. So put on a happy face. I am wearing my very happiest face <laughs> and my very warmest jumper. But though, sadly, as you say, we didn't expect it to be cold. So there's not a lot of, not a lot of warm clothes floating around. Anyway, let's go, uh, let's have a look at the papers because the New York Times says there are many reasons to run for president when you probably don't stand a chance. Yeah, this is a, I'm so glad that somebody has written this report because I've often wondered why over in the United States, and it is very much an American phenomenon, isn't it, to have a massive list of people all running for president, uh, the vast majority of which must be going for the job knowing they don't stand any chance whatsoever. Of course, one of those uh, used to be Donald Trump, so you do never know. Uh, but at the same time, you do have to wonder why it happens. Now, the Times has written this excellent piece for their weekend edition, and it's all about how even if you know you're not going to win, and, and even when inevitably you don't win, there are still so many things that come with running for president, such as book deals, such as heightened fame, such as attention. So you can really turn it into a bit of a, a miniature industry. And Gigi, I think you only need to look back, uh, not so far at all, to see what happened when Sarah Palin wasn't even running for president. You know, she was only picked by John McCain to be a, a running mate, and it really, it launched her name into a completely different level of fame, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of paid speeches to do. I mean, those, those 
those speaking tours are gold mines, really. They're incredibly lucrative if you get in with a good speaker bureau and off you go around the States giving talks for, for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and as you say, not a, notoriety is actually a big part of it. A lot of people just want to be famous. Exactly. They just want to be talked about. And uh, I suppose that's part of why it works so well in the American culture, because that celebrity culture is really very much intertwined with politics. Uh, you and I, of course, are based in the United Kingdom. Uh, I'm originally from Australia, and both of those political cultures are very different. We don't really have that many, or in Australia, I would argue, we don't have any politicians who would also qualify as a celebrity. But you go over to the United States, and you do have these political identities who they can also be described as celebrities, don't you? At the moment, uh, one uh, an, an individual who's very much come with this uh, notion of celebrity is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And even if she's originally wasn't necessarily uh, um, fostering that celebrity notion herself, it really has come with her. And I, I don't think you'd see that same thing happening in other cultures around the globe. Well, that's very true. And many people have said with the election of Donald Trump, does this mean that only a celebrity can actually win the president? race in America. I mean, Oprah is one of the, the names that's been touted uh, in, in that context. Also, someone like George Clooney, for at, perhaps. People are looking for somebody who already has a profile. They recognise their name on the ballot paper, and that's who they want to vote for. It's funny you talk about other countries. I'm from Zimbabwe, and our political um, landscape is very different there, where uh, actually, if, if you are uh, the opposition in any way, you are just basically the enemy. It's, it's uh, the, the, the state media which, which prevails. Uh, it seems to be given carte blanche to just rubbish anybody who isn't part of the opposition party. So actually, by sticking your head above the parapet there, you are becoming a, an object of, of hate and ridicule for, for, for much of, of the state media, which is, which is very worrying. It's extremely worrying, and you do have to wonder uh, where, amongst all of these different things that we've just mentioned now, where does the the idea of experience and a steady hand at the wheel come in? Because I've always I've always thought that politics is at its healthiest when it's actually remarkably dull, and this uh, this thing that has seemed to be created more and more in culture now that we need politics to be exciting, otherwise we're just not going to be interested. That's really a bit of a fallacy, isn't it? And perhaps that's why Australian politics has been a little bit immune to some of the uh, far right or, or far any side of the political spectrum uh, directions in recent history, because we do have compulsory voting. So it does mean that even if you are bored to death by the whole thing, you still need to turn up on, on election day and you still need to cast your vote. You'll get a democracy sausage, so you're not getting nothing for it. <laughs> um, is that I, vegan? <laughs> <laughs> it probably is nowadays, actually. But I do have to say it's, it's quite interesting in this New York Times report, the gentleman that they're using for the, um, the main peg for this report, his name is Eric Swalwell. Now, of course, he's not very well known at all, and that, uh, that obviously is the, the point of the piece. But he is still a congressman. He's a little-known congressman, but he's a professional politician. So he is bringing with him some degree of political experience. So despite the fact that nobody knows who this guy is and we already know he's not going to win the presidency, he's still bringing remarkably more experience than the current president. No, absolutely. And you make such a good point there about uh, sort of bureaucracy and how, how dull it can really be. I sit on a number of boards and committees and actually I have to say they bore me senseless kind of sitting in, in sometimes endlessly lengthy uh, and needlessly lengthy meetings. But that's kind of how bureaucracy and democracy works. Um, recently, the Independent Group, which is the group of 11 MPs who've split from both the Labour and Conservative parties in Britain, have formed a new party, and they sent out a mass email to their supporters. Hmm, I wonder why I got it. Um, and they uh, were asking for volunteers to run for the European Parliament. And so they've had this absolute flood of ordinary people in Britain saying, yes, I want to be an MEP. Uh, and they've given out guidance, basically saying, well, look at this very carefully because it is your longest nightmare committee meeting basically <laughs> that's what it's about absolutely yeah I, I do i encourage everyone to go and read this piece in the new york times today it really is quite an eye-opener and uh if you are feeling like you should jump into the uh, democracy bandwagon if you might call it that uh 
I would, well, well what, what should people do, Georgina? I, I mean, I would always encourage people, well, pay attention to politics and go and vote or go and stand for parliament. But if you want to be a celebrity, perhaps you should go and audition for The Bachelor or something. Absolutely. I think that the two definitely need to remain separate. <laughs> uh, we'll continue with the weekend papers soon. But up next, more from Salona de Mobile. This is a special edition of Sunday Brunch, live from Milan. Stay with us. The Baguette is fighting back with artisanal valour. Meet Paris baker Christophe Vasseur. He runs successful corner shop Dupin et Desidées and knows how to make the perfect loaf. A top quality bread is always brown, dark brown. You push the door of bakery, if everything is, is brown to, uh, to dark brown, it's perfect. If it's all white, forget it, run away. The secret to baking bread. Playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Good morning from Milan. You're tuned to a very special edition of Sunday Brunch. We're perched right next to the Monocle Cafe where the flat whites have been flying fast. It is, of course, Design Week and we've set up shop for a series of special live broadcasts from the Salone del Mobile. Our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, has been quite a busy man this week. He also caught up with French designer and architect Jean-Marie Massaud. They spoke about where Europe is headed during turbulent times politically and economically from a design perspective. I hope that uh, Europe will be will count. As you know, uh, there is no single initiative today. It's, uh, it's impossible to do by alone things. We need to be to have a critical mass to people being involved together to make part of the of the path. For me and for Europe, it's really important that we we, we try to do something together. As far as uh, you have to main uh, power, United States, China. But uh, it's also part of the, the, the diversity of uh, cultural influence for what could be our future as humankind, even if Earth doesn't need us uh, to, to live quite. But there is some, uh, some stakes and I hope Europe now is, is uh, crossing some bad influence, like every time in the history when people are scared about future. Okay, they try to find some simple answers that are not positive one, but uh, usually that uh, going back to their scare. But mm. it's the issue of today, and Macron is a new player that I hope is very progressive. You're here, you just touched down. Tell me, you've got a variety of things on the go, like every designer, a series of projects. What is uh, Monsieur Marceau unveiling at Salone this year? Like, let's say everywhere, because I work for 10 years and even more with some companies, with the same companies. So it's a long partnership that sometimes we have uh, new things, sometimes just few things. It's a good year, let's say. I'm very proud of what we did together with Polyform, Poltrona with Didon, uh, Harper and MDF Italia that's the main player in this industry of furniture and also with the German company Axor Axor Hansgrohe where it's about faucets equipment and we launched a new big collection where it's about uh, Eugene's vest for them and I think that's that's it and with that net, of course my new partnership it's a, a small company few people it's a patrimony of UNESCO this small company in Bosnia when they ask me first I said no no I don't open partnership because I don't want to, to do more in furniture field when I understood it was in Bosnia I thought mm, Europe is living the same kind of in the history break where I'm scared about uh, mm. nearly one century ago, before the First World War, and wanted to have a look there. What does it mean? And I saw the place, and we, we developed craftsman piece of furniture where I, just beautiful, from my point of view, and it's all in wood and made with carving things, and yeah, I'm quite excited to show this. And did you find there was a different level of skill or craftsmanship that you found maybe in Bosnia that if you went to Portugal or you went to Poland or somewhere else for manufacturing that they had to offer? To be really honest, no, the skills are quite the same. When you have good craftsmen about wood, they are everywhere, everywhere are the same. Maybe in Japan, they are quite different, let's say. They have the Ostroman and Austro-Hongroan mixed culture there, and they develop some different kind of traditional patterns that helps them to have different skills. I didn't use this kind of folk patterns, but it was a pleasure to work with them and to discover something different here, really. Do you think if you look at that region as well, because I mean, maybe the odd time you, you get a garment and you see it's made in Bosnia, Herzegovina, but it's, it's quite rare to see a product in, I would say, in a developed world context 
from there. Do you see a big chance in the Balkan region for maybe even more manufacturing and more growth? I mean, in the same way that we see things, of course, more from North Africa, we see more things. Yeah, I mean, even we mentioned Portugal. Yeah. Portugal was has always been manufacturing things, but maybe not at the same level they are today. Yeah, maybe. But in Bosnia, it's a three million inhabitants. In the mountains, it's not. There is no industry, let's say. So the only way today for them is, of course, to to work together. Like finally, in north of Italy, where. It's more about industry, but there is small communities of very uh, sharp entrepreneurs in very sharp technology that work together to help these furniture editors or even uh, the car industry like Ferrari and everything, Brombo. They are connected together to make a big industry where they don't have huge industry like in the United States or in China. But there is just Craftman, and I think it's uh, crucial for them because... When I see in Europe what we have in France, like social uh, manifestations and things, and you see there what's their reality, we feel like a little bit guilty to, to have this kind of attitude. And finally, a curiosity for me was an adventure to try to, to share positive energy with these people that are very angry to use their skills to, to make business. And step by step, I think, of course, when you are living in the needs, you are smarter. It's like uh, you have the d dinosaurs and the ma small mammals, and small mammals at that time just need a few energy just to survive and to adapt themselves. And I met people that are very, very smart, so like everywhere in the world, but they need it. <laughs> so we will see. That was Jean-Marie Massaud talking to Tyler Brulé. Premiering at 10 a.m. London time on Saturdays, our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulé, or Tom Edwards, when Tyler is on the road, presents a weekly 30-minute program that celebrates print media. Our paper is incredibly expensive. The paper is too important that it looks good, that it's consistent. It creates the impression that we've been around for a very, very, very long time. Join Tyler Brulé or Tom Edwards for The Stack. Monaco 24's weekly print industry review and analysis show every Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. There's so much happening here this week for Milan's ever-popular Salone de Mobile. Earlier, we dispatched our own Tom Edwards for a chat with Luca Martinazzoli, head of city marketing for Milan. They discussed what Salone means for the city, but also where there are new opportunities for the city to become a wider hub of design, business and technology. Being in a city business in these days is a very tough business, probably the toughest business, as you know, running Monaco. There is a huge competition coming from Europe, but globally, as each single city is investing to promote themselves and to offer new services. As a city, we see the opportunity we launched a few months ago a new promotional agency under the brand of Yes Milano. And uh, we see three specific opportunities for business. The first one is to become a gateway for Europe, for the east of the world. We look to Asia, we look to Middle East uh, as destination that they can see Italy as a, as a gateway. We can offer them an amazing quality of life, amazing connection to the rest of Europe and uh, specific clusters where we are highly specialized. So apart from fashion and design and financial services, life science is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, FinTech is a huge opportunity. We are not where London is, but the system is evolving uh, faster than in other places. And uh, Agritech is another space where uh, Italy can bring together the knowledge and the tradition of food uh, with the technicality of life science and everything connected to nutrition in general. So we, we see this significant opportunity in front of us and we are attacking the market with the right tools. Well, I was going to ask you a bit about the, the new sort of agency and some of these new directions. How easy is it to enact a change like that, to change maybe the structure of your department and others? Are you quite fleet of foot? Are you able to try new things? Because often we think about things, it's, there's lots of bureaucracy in City Hall, this kind of thing. Is it quite yeah. easy to, to make no. changes? No. <laughs> no. I think the a significant challenge of Italy in general, Milano specifically, is that we, we are a place where there are a lot of actors. Uh, and we are um, very much individuals and we play with this mentality. So it's very difficult to bring together institutions and people to achieve the same goals. 
It happens when we have big goals. It happens with Expo. It's now happening with the Olympics that we are looking for for 2026. But that's the biggest challenge: is try to make sure people comes together around the table and they play with the same objective. We believe that when we are able to show the opportunity as a city hall and in general as a citizen, there is a desire to do more. Bureaucracy is, I mean, it's tough, but it's everywhere, I guess. It's not Italy. And is there, I mean, civic pride as well? Are the Milanese, are they particularly proud of their proud of their town? I mean, I think in Milano, everyone is very proud, but we are not very loud in, <laughs> in telling... This is a nice combination. ...about ourselves. So we, we love to be very much critical about what we do. And in fact, in respect of other cities or other countries, we are less good in promoting ourselves. As a, as a destination or as a brand. I think this is pushing us to, to, to do more. At the same time, we're losing some opportunities to show the confidence that we have in our city. Now, you mentioned your technical focus being on the technical side of the operation. Can you tell us a bit about the tools at your disposal that you're most excited about? Because at Monocle, we often hear about smart cities, even here at the Hyundai stand, everyone's talking about the digital transformation which is ongoing. What do those tools look like? Are you most excited by this sort of digital realm? If I have to talk about tools, technical tools, I think data are the biggest challenge for the city. We are under a process of restructuring our data hub, especially we are building a data hub for tourism, which is very unique and is bringing together a lot of data partnership with credit cards, with telco, with the local provider of data. And together with that, we are working to build a DMP of the city. So we are working to build a global audience and correlate this audience with our data provider. And we believe it's going to be a super powerful tool. What stuck me when I started this job is that cities don't know too much about their customers, which is very... I think we live in a situation where citizen knows more about the city than cities know about the customers which is unique in the business at least in europe so we have been forcing a lot this in order to evolve and change we build a new crm of the city of milano so focusing on citizen and we know a lot about them now in a positive way and on the other side we have been um, pushing the knowledge of visitors and uh, finally we know who they are, what they do, where they move, what they want. And it's an interesting project, I think, the most challenging one for us. Let's play a sort of a fantasy game. Let's say we're sat maybe here, even here in Tortona, in, in 2030. Do you have a confidence that you know what Milan will look like, will feel like then? Do you think that these long-term goals that you've been describing are set fair? Are you, are you confident about what the future will, will be like here in Milano? I'm very much confident about the future of Milan. I'm less confident about the future of the country, not as Italy, but as um, we see Milano become a center of gravity for the business. Mm. And the rest of Italy is losing ground with uh, huge uh, negative externalities. So I believe the challenge is that we know that we will continue to grow and the city will become uh, higher and larger and will attract more and more businesses, but we believe that they will mainly come from the rest of Italy instead of the rest of the world. And so they will create a significant inequality. Uh, well, just finally then, obviously, it's very easy sat here on our stand, the sun is shining, thanks for sorting that out. And there's so much dynamism and excitement around this week in particular. But to those who are perhaps listening from further away, what's the key message, what's some of the key kind of campaign language that you and your colleagues have of why they need to come here, whether it's for business, for pleasure, for design week? What's the USP you know, that Milano still has, do you think? I think we are able to balance a very functional city and efficient city together with um, an incredible lifestyle. So I think you can bring together the best of uh, modern life, which is driven by goals and by business, as we are in Milano, uh, historically, together with the opportunity to live at a different pace. And the pace of the city of Milano is unique. We are 1.5 million people. We are one hour and a half far away from the seaside, from the mountains, from the lakes. Uh, and we have an incredible uh, offering of heritage, but heritage which is alive. It's not uh, that you look to the past, but you see people making stuff. 
in Milano. So I think it's, it's unique and uh, it's a different feeling than living in Taipei these days, right? I mean, it's different opportunity. But if you have interest in, in personal balance, I think Milano is one of the best choice across the world in these days. That was Monocle's Tom Edwards speaking to Luca Martinazzoli, head of city marketing for Milan. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city, whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Coffee's brewing and the crowds are flocking in here at Salona de Mobile in Milan. This is Sunday Brunch on Monocle 24, a special edition of the programme. And I'm joined once again by Ben Ryland for a look at the weekend news. Uh, ben, I don't know what you watch on television, but um, I am not and have never been a Game of Thrones fan. Now, that's not because I don't like it. I've just never actually watched it. But it appears I might be the only person on the planet that hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, there might be a few Game of Thrones fans who will spit their coffee out when I say this, that calm down, I do actually watch it, I have watched it, I do like it, but like you, Georgina, I haven't managed to keep up necessarily. I'm, I'm quite behind to the point where I haven't watched it for a couple of years now, but I do have a very deep appreciation for what it is, and look, it's impossible to ignore the fact that it has really changed television. And that's what this piece in the Financial Times, uh, the FT Weekend, is all about. Uh, of course, the headline, obviously enough, how Game of Thrones changed television. Uh, the final season of HBO's epic series has just started broadcasting around the world. So we are at the point now where fans are having to start to ask some really serious questions of themselves what's going to happen when Game of Thrones is finished and there's that big, wide, gaping hole in the TV schedule? What is going to happen? <laughs> well, look, if we look back at what things were like before we had this idea of epic television, or some people might call it premium cable, uh, television was quite different, wasn't it? You had uh, these weekly series. The, the, the big series of the moment usually were, for a while, either medical series, so Grey's Anatomy, or legal series. You know, you had uh, uh, Ally McBeal and, and so on, and, and Boston Boston Practice, was it called? Boston Legal. Boston Legal was the other one. The, the reign of David E. Kelly, let's call it that. Uh, and that was very much, you know, the drama of the week, and, and each episode, there were a few storylines that carried on, but it was very much each episode, uh, one by one, could be digested. Now it's all about like it's all like a, a movie that will go on for years and years and years, and you can't just tune in casually here and there and then tune out again. You have to watch the whole thing, and especially with this binge watching phenomenon, that's really altered everything, hasn't it? So now, often you won't even have that collective experience of coming to work the next morning and say, "Oh my goodness, Georgina, did you see Ally McBeal last night?" Uh, most people will say, "Don't talk to me. I haven't watched all of it yet. I don't know where you're up to. Don't spoil it. Get away from me. Let's talk about something else. Anything else?" Yeah, we've lost that. Water cooler moment. We really have, uh, and uh, not completely. It must be said, there are lots of series that are on streaming platforms, but are releasing episodes week by week. I'm very much into uh, the Good Fight at the moment, which is the spin-off of, of the Good Wife. Uh, it's on CBS All Access. And uh, it stars Christine Baranski. And, but each episode will only be added to the streaming platform week by week. So that does force me and everyone I know who watches it to really sit down and watch it when it's happening. And you can't go and spoil it to all your friends. And of course, another more obvious example of that would be RuPaul's Drag Race. You can only tune into that at the same time as everyone else. Um, and of course, all the fans watch it the very second it's released, because how could you possibly wait? Well, so even as a non-Game of Thrones watcher, uh, I know that the, the final season has arrived and the anticipation is absolutely huge. I mean, it, uh, as, the, as the newspaper points out, as the FT points out, we haven't seen anything like this since the climax of Harry Potter. Well, indeed. Uh, it's really turned into quite a phenomenon, hasn't it? Uh, interestingly, uh, it doesn't 
I'm quite surprised that the merchandising around Game of Thrones and Game of Thrones hasn't taken off a, a little bit more. Usually, that's what you'd see from these sorts of fantasy epics, but I guess that has more to do with the with the demographic. But um, it'll be interesting to see what HBO do with the gaping hole in their schedule. They will need to come up with a brand new hit, and it wasn't so long ago that we saw the head of HBO, the man, the man who's overseen much of what HBO has become, uh, leave. His, his post over at HBO. So uh, they are in a moment now where they're going to have to consider what comes next. Uh, this same thing happened uh, some years ago, uh, must be a decade ago now, when Sex and the City came to an end. That was a real cultural revolution. And uh, we saw some other rival networks try to come up with their own versions of Sex and the City to, to fill that hole in, in the cultural mm. uh, the cultural spectrum and neither of them worked. You, you had Cashmere Mafia, which was a short-lived one, and uh, Lipstick Jungle. Both of them only lasted a season or two. And one, one does wonder, does it have to end? Because with a, a, a huge huge cast, there surely are very many spin-offs to be had. You would think that, but then often spin-offs don't work. Even when they are spin-offs of, of hit series, they generally don't work very well. There are, of course, the exceptions. You've got uh, Frasier being an obvious exception, being a somewhat a spin-off of Cheers. But if we look back more recently to uh, the spin-off that came after Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, which of course has been a success, but you would not call that uh, an epic hit, would you? It's not the kind of thing that, that everyone has been talking about. It hasn't been driving massive conversations. Uh, so even if there were more money to be made in a spin-off, it's probably not going to be the very big series that Game of Thrones has been. I, I think it's safe to say we are at a point now where we need to be asking what comes next. And, and HBO, AMC, uh, the rest of the, the networks, uh, FX being another one that's really been trying to, to tap into this as well, they're all going to have to ask, what are they going to do next? What are they going to tap into? Uh, how are they going to create the next big thing? It's not going to be by repeating something. Game of Thrones came about because it was so incredibly original, unlike everything else. So whatever comes next will also need to be unlike everything else. And I find myself watching uh, the writer now rather than the cast or a particular story. So one person who has really caught my imagination, along with the rest of the world, is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the writer of Fleabag. Uh, but she also uh, she also wrote um, the, the, the wonderful series Series starring Sandra O, oh, uh, whose name I Killing Eve. Killing Eve, that's yes. it. She wrote Killing Eve, uh, and she's got a number of other projects in the pipeline. And actually, I'm now happy to follow her wherever she goes, whatever she writes. I want to watch it. I think Crashes is another one that she's written that I'm I'm waiting to watch. And uh, she just seems so incredibly talented and actually really diverse. Killing Eve is very different from Fleabag, but both of them completely fabulous. So uh, that's one writer that I'll certainly be following on our way. Absolutely. I think the, the writers are definitely the ones to watch. Uh, that was very much how David E. Kelly made his name, but also another one, Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, who was uh, the creator of... Uh, what was it? Gilmore Girls, that's the one. And she's recently done The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which if anyone out there has not seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, get on it right now. It is one of the finest productions on television at the moment. Um, but that, of course, uh, Georgina, is all uh, all inside this piece, inside the FT Weekend uh, this weekend. It's by India Ross, and it's all about how Game of Thrones has changed television. So highly recommend it for people to pop over and have a read of that. Absolutely. Ben, thank you very much indeed. We'll have more from the Weekend Papers later. Up next, back to Salone de Mobile. Funny how many people get these things wrong. I go into a lot of jazz clubs and I go, what made you build it like this? These days, everyone's got an opinion about design. Join us on our journey to cut through the noise. We sit down with the design greats. It's just bloody-minded inquisitiveness, really. And have you covered on everything from architecture to product design and fonts to fashion? There's so many collections being designed. Actually, there maybe is a lifespan on a designer's role at the helm of a brand. And of course, we're at all the key events in the design calendar with in-depth reports from our global network of correspondents. Two and a half hours by train from Amsterdam lies the historic city of Maastricht, which every year hosts the fabulous Tefa Fair. Perhaps intuitively, Monocle on Design is Monocle's weekly design show. Tune in every Tuesday at 1900 London time or download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Top 
of the morning to you from Milan. This is a special edition of Sunday Brunch, live from the Salona de Mobile. I'm Georgina Godwin. Now, one of the people who's caught Monocle's attention this year is solar designer Marian van Orbel. She's been trying to change perceptions about solar technology by weaving into it the very fabric of our furniture and lighting. Her innovations include a coffee table with a surface made up of solar cells and a greenhouse powered by solar glass. And her recent collaboration is with Swarovski Lighting. Marian spoke to Monocle's Daphne Karnitzis. My name is Marianne van Avel and I'm a solar designer. Can you just explain to, to our listeners, you know, how, how would you define a solar designer exactly? And I know that in the past you've spoken about solar democracy as well. So what do you mean by that? If I look to solar technology as a designer, I can see that now has been solar panels are being perceived as a technology that is yeah, used to generate electricity, but it's, it's not like very well integrated into our daily environment. So I think it needs this transition of kind of like want to have it more in an environment and it needs to have a sort of emotional value in order to, to bring it closer. And for example, that's what, what I've been working on, but also it, it had this transition of first solar panels were very expensive and now the last 60 years they became so much more efficient and cheaper. So now actually there's room and space for also to look at the aesthetics and integration, different colors, different yeah, textures and complete new technologies that are there. For example, there's transparent glass which you don't even see that is generating electricity. And we're obviously here at the Swarovski Pavilion now. And before we get into that and into your latest collaboration with them, I just wanted to ask you a bit about your background. How did you how did you get into this? Is your background in engineering, in design? I mean, I have a background in design. I studied a design lab at the Rietveld Academy in Amsterdam and then design products at the RCA in London. But I don't have an engineering background or something, but I collaborate a lot with engineers or institutions or labs. And I just have a very general interest in how things are made and, and yeah. So let's talk about what we can see now, your your lights with Zorowski. Can you describe to our listeners what we can see? So what you see here is a, called a cyanometer. It's got its name from it's this tool from the 19th century that was used to measure the blueness of the sky, so the color of the sky. So you have this round ring and you can hold it up to the sky and you can see how blue the sky was as in that time people loved measuring everything, so also the color of the sky. Yeah, so these are kind of other types of crystals and they're called opal crystals. And why I love them so much is that because they refract the light similarly as the sky does. So if you have it, the sun from coming from the top at 12 o'clock, then it, the sky is very blue, but at sunset it becomes orange because of the re- refraction of the, the light of, and the, the cloudiness in the stone. So you have a little sky in a, in a stone basically. And how does the solar come into it? Yeah, there was an installation during Art Basel, Design Miami, and then these chandeliers were powered by uh, solar crystals. So it had like, like a big crystal on top that was focusing the light onto a solar panel and that was powering the chandeliers. But for this Crystal Palace collection we just developed the light into like a, a usable product. So you have a different variation, a standing light, a wall light and a hanging light. But they're not powered by solar panels yet. That's the next step. Tell me a little bit about some of your, your other products, some tables that you've designed with a similar integrated solar technology in them. So, for example, the, the table is called a current table, where the whole tabletop consists out of these dye-sensitized solar cells. And that's a relatively new technology. And it uses colors to generate electricity. So it's like basically you see a colored surface or a transparent orange or blue or different colors and yeah, the, so the tabletop yeah, is getting the lights and you can charge your phone through the USB port in the, in the legs. Because when you think of solar panels, you don't really think of something sexy or something that you'd like to have in your home. So are you sort of trying to bring an element of aesthetic quality into it and sort of show people that you can have furniture integrated with the solar technology and it to look good in your home yeah exactly and also that's important also because i mean when i saw this colored glass you know i was like wow and if that's harvesting energy that's for me is fascinating also because it's so sensitive to light that it even works indoors i mean pretty amazing and also yeah then you you have a more relationship with your furniture it's just not, not a table anymore but also like a little power station in your house and it's really 
the next step of like this awareness that we need, need to have and yeah how is light being transferred into electricity and yeah you build a kind of a relationship with this object and what do you think is still the biggest challenge to overcome is it this idea of people's perceptions of it or is it something else yeah i mean i still get the question a lot of like how what's efficiency and that becomes a bit of like an old-fashioned question because the solar solar panels are so advanced that they became so much more efficient and it's because they're much cheaper it doesn't really matter because then you have a bigger surface and you still have the same efficiency i would say i mean i would say now the price is sort of my biggest challenge because i work with really new technologies so that they still have to make this curve called the death valley that they become more affordable but yeah it's just a matter of pushing that i guess it is important that furniture and lighting is beautiful but also that it's functional and that it solves a problem do you think that there should be more of that element in design and is that something that you try to do yeah i mean what i try to do with my work is that i sort of like i work from an extreme efficiency so when it's like really works very well then it's also it's the right shape or the right whatever it is you know then i know it's right in the long term i try to use this technologies in a very clever way of also like how we can deal with the future and how we perceive technologies not just like like solar panels are now that's just like something stacked onto its environment but really becomes like part of our natural environment such as our clothing a car you know we don't think it as a technology but it is a technology but we perceive it different and that's why i think design plays in a very important role in that that's Dutch designer Marian van Orbel and Monocle's Daphne Karnitzis. This is Sunday Brunch, live from Milan. We'll continue with the weekend papers next. The baguette is fighting back with artisanal valour. Meet Paris baker Christophe Vasseur. He runs successful corner shop Dupin et Desidée and knows how to make the perfect loaf. A top quality bread is always brown, dark brown. You push the door of bakery if everything is, is brown to... Uh, Dark brown, it's perfect. If it's all white, forget it. Run away. The secret to baking bread. Playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Hello, this is a special edition of Sunday Brunch, live from the Salona de Mobile in Milan. Now, Ben Rylan is back with me with the weekend papers. Uh, ben, we're travelling to Australia now from your home city. It's Melbourne and The Age. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Always lovely to pick up the age on a weekend. And there is a report here, unsurprisingly, Georgina, it's about politics. Because, as you may or may not have heard, Australia is due for another change of Prime Minister, probably, uh, quite soon. We've got an election coming up in May. Uh, The Prime Minister in waiting, as he appears to be, if we take a look at the the mood of Australians and certainly the polls, uh, Bill Shorten. Uh, The report here in The Age is all about how Bill Shorten has uh, handpicked a lady by the name of Christina Keneally to be what, uh, well, the role is sort of being described as bus captain, and it's described in The Age as a mix of confident sounding board, media wrangler, morale booster, and, where needed, attack dog. So she's basically the bad cop to his good. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be. It seems to be that role. But uh, the, it, I have to say, it's, it's quite a complimentary report that The Age has put together here. Now, it's by the journalist uh, Shane Wright, is his name. And uh, we must apologise to our listeners, by the way, for this alarm. Uh, we are broadcasting outside here in Milan, so we are subject to the elements. And unfortunately, the alarm has taken us over. But uh, we'll persevere anyway, Georgina. And unfortunately, the elements are not being particularly kind <laughs> no, either. The skies are grey. <laughs> uh, the skies are a little bit warmer over in Australia, though. Uh, so Christina Keneally is a former Premier of New South Wales. And uh, I have to say that this report here put together by Shane Wright is very complimentary of her. It has described her as someone who has really taken it in her stride to take on this very challenging role because the idea of her being able to be deployed whenever something sticky needs to be handled uh, as far as uh, the the public response or the political response uh, is concerned means that Bill Shorten is now free to only uh, espouse a positive tone. He can can walk around and and appear to be the solutions man, the one who's going to come into Parliament and fix everything at the next election, while Christina Keneally handles the much more difficult topics, and she's been doing it very well. Mm. Uh, Now, you say uh, an election coming up, another change of leader. To be fair, Australia seems to be having those every five minutes at at this time. Yeah, but I've got to say, when 
People always uh, sort of make these jokes about Australia, and of course I'm one of them too, that we just can't hold on to our Prime Ministers, we get bored of them too soon. But I look at the way things work in some other countries, particularly Britain of course at the moment with the whole Brexit debate, and you look at that and think, well, in Australia we would have gone through three or four Prime Ministers in the time that this Brexit thing has been going on, and, and yeah. it, it just it would, be, it would be solved, it would be finished, it would be wrapped up and we would all would have moved on. It does mean that the Australian attitude, this idea that we don't become emotionally attached to a leader, is so healthy, especially when you look at other cultures such as the United States, which seems to have this presidential worship problem. The idea of any Australian worshipping the Prime Minister, the way that people hold the office of the, the presidency up in such high regard, is just is just laughable. If something's not working, we simply get rid of it and move on. Yeah, and, and of course we're broadcasting to you from Italy, which uh, also has a history of changing its governments as often as uh, underwear. <laughs> Even more often, you might say. I believe, uh, I believe it was only last week, I think, on an edition of Midori House, we had our uh, culture editor, Chiara Ramella, on. And uh, she did a bit of a calculation on how many uh, governments there have been since, world, since the Second World War. And look, I'm going to have to guess, but it was definitely up there around 64 changes of government in, in that time, which is an awfully large figure. But look, it, a change of government can be a very, very healthy thing. And certainly at the moment in Australia, a, a change of government, regardless of which side of the fence you might be sitting on, probably is going to be healthy. Uh, we've seen a lot of chaos in government over the, the last couple of years. And certainly it seems as if there's a bit of a civil war happening within the ruling Liberal National Coalition. So those sorts of things do need to be rinsed out. And it was only a little while ago that we saw the exact same thing happening to the Labour Party. And when, once something like that erupts, you, you do need to come in and think, well, how is this going to be fixed? It probably needs to be fixed by losing government, having a bit of a soul search, and then coming back in a couple of years and, and working things out again. And a quick look ahead to the elections then, Ben. What are you expecting? Oh, I'm absolutely expecting the Labour Party to, to win a, a comfortable majority, I would think. Uh, it, it won't be a, a huge thumping thumping win, but it certainly will be a comfortable majority. Bill Shorten will be the Prime Minister. It'll be an interesting situation because Bill Shorten is historically unpopular. Uh, I mentioned just then about how the Labour Party some years ago had had a bit of a civil war inside its own wings, and uh, that was of course in the, the years where we saw the musical chairs between uh, Julia Gillard and, and Kevin Rudd. Uh, the interesting thing with that is that Bill Shorten was the one working in the shadows through all of that. So he was responsible largely for the downfall of Kevin Rudd, and then he was again responsible for the downfall of Julia Gillard when he switched his allegiance at the very last minute uh, before the election was held and then was given over to Tony Abbott uh, as the Prime Minister after that. So he has been there all along, and I think a lot of Australians do look at him and think, well, I'm not entirely sure about you. Your hands are still a little bit dirty from the last time we saw this disaster in the halls of Parliament. But that said, he has been a very sturdy leader of the Labour Party. He has been very reliable, a, a steady set of hands at the wheel, if you will. So uh, the Labour Party, at least, will be happy to have him in charge. And besides, they've got people like Tanya Plibersek who are more than capable. Ben, thank you very much indeed. Well, we've reached the end of today's show. Still much more to come from Milan, uh, and we'll have a special weekend edition of The Briefing live at 11.30 in London. That's 12.30 here in Milan. Back with Midori House live at 15.30 in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. That's Sunday Brunch. Have a lovely day.